Amen. Well, thank you for gathering with us this Lord's Day as we continue to walk through God's Word together. If you have not already, if you'll turn to Exodus chapter 22. Uh, We are walking through the book of Exodus, and so uh, I've mentioned before Exodus chapter 20 is probably the most preached on chapter of Exodus. That's where we find the Ten Commandments, and we spent a great length of time and many sermons walking through those commandments, through that moral law of God to His people. Uh, But following that, once we get into Exodus 21, 22, 23, uh, those are probably the least preached on chapters of Exodus. Uh, Because now we get into different ceremonial laws and civil laws that are based on the moral law. And some of them seem rather unusual or strange to us today. And in fact, there's a number of laws that we've already looked at. We've looked at the context of them. Uh, but they're laws that when we read them, like some of them that we read today, we wonder, well, what does this really have to do with me now, today, in this time, and in this context? Uh, but I do believe that, that all Scripture is inspired by God, and all of it's profitable. And there's great value to walking through the Scripture, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so I pray that that God will teach us today, even as we walk through uh, some really strange and unusual things. In fact, this section that we're looking at today, uh, picking up at the 16th verse of Exodus 22 through the beginning there of Exodus 23, a lot of these laws seem just kind of piecemealed together. But I, I think there's a big picture for us to grasp, and hopefully that picture will help us to better understand the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And so, out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to stand, if you would, as I read for us His Holy Word, we're going to pick up there in Exodus 22, verse 16. Again, the setting here, God has given His His Word, He's given the Ten Commandments to the people, to Moses there at the foot of Mount Sinai. The people are pulling back in fear. They ask Moses to go before them, to be their mediator, to get the rest of the law from God. So God is now giving them these civil and ceremonial laws through their, his servant Moses. And so this is what God says to Moses. This is what he says to his people. Exodus 22, beginning there in verse 16, we read this. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. For father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the god alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt." You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. And you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. 
You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest, from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beast in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man and be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many who do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of the one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. If you would pray with me, church. Father, we have read from Your Word today, Your holy, Your inspired Word And yet there may be confusion about it. There are some things here that may seem unusual, even strange to us. And much of this we might just write off and say, well, that that had an application back in the history of your people, but we're not so sure about today. And yet, Lord, all, all Scripture is inspired by you and all Scripture is profitable for your people. So help us to profit from it today. We ask in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. As I was preparing to preach this week and thinking through some of these strange and and unusual laws that we've encountered already, some that we look at today, I was reminded of a magazine article I read about a year ago. Uh, This article uh, outlined the the strangest, the, the, the most bizarre laws from each state in our nation. And so... I'm going to share a few of them with you this morning. Uh, I met some friends earlier from Alabama. You may not know this, but in Alabama, it's illegal to wear a fake mustache that causes laughter in church. So take that back with you. Make sure everybody knows in Alabama. Uh, Georgia, uh, Pastor Matt's around here somewhere. There he is. Uh, Pastor Matt is from his home state. It's illegal in Georgia to keep an ice cream cone in your back pocket on Sundays. Y'all can check him later on. California. Now, how many of y'all, just by show of hands, you can, you can be truthful in church. How many of you like to eat frog legs? All right. All right. You disgusting people. Well, in California, be, no, be mindful of this. In California, a frog that dies during a frog jumping contest cannot legally be eaten. So if you're ever out there. And then if you're on your way home and you're driving through Missouri, you need to note this. In Missouri, it's illegal to drive with an uncaged bear in your car. In New York, I thought they might have a bizarre one. This was the unusual law in New York. 
it's illegal to wear slippers after 10 o'clock at night in public. I'm going to assume they don't have a Walmart then. Uh, <laughs> and then Kentucky, and honestly, I, don't, I still don't understand this. If you can explain this later, I'd appreciate it. Uh, our unusual law in Kentucky, one may not dye a duckling blue and offer it for sale unless more than six are for sale at once. Go figure that. I was trying to come up with a Kentucky joke, something there, but I have no idea where that law comes from or the purpose of it. And that's kind of how we are with some of these laws. You, you've probably heard other states, uh, other weird regulations, other things that seem kind of archaic and perhaps they served a point at one time, but not so much today. That's how we tend to view these strange and unusual laws in our land today. And that's kind of how we tend to view strange and unusual laws in the Bible. In fact, I think for most of us, we tend to read through the Old Testament and we come to some of these laws and regulations and we assume they had a purpose when they were given. We're just not so sure what that purpose was or how those things really apply to us today. And that's the reason, I think, as I've already mentioned, so few pastors actually preach on texts like this. But because what is the application of this? Well, I'm hoping that we can find some application this morning because that there was a purpose for these laws and that purpose goes directly back to the Ten Commandments. God gives that moral law that Jesus reiterates to us in the New Testament and then He gives these civil and ceremonial laws. These are the ways these moral laws were lived out in the culture. And so as He's preparing His people to go into the promised land, He's preparing them to be a holy people. A people called after His own name. And friends, while our customs and while our civil laws and while our ceremonial laws might look a bit different today, in fact, some of these don't apply to us today, that, 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 that call to be holy as the Lord our God is holy is still the same. And so I hope today as we walk through this passage, we might learn some things that encourage us towards holiness in our own walks with the Lord but because there's some reminders here for us that we need to be aware of. And we'll begin with the first one there in your outline. Uh, the social justice laws remind us of the penalty for sin. They remind us of the penalty for sin. Uh, Paul writes in Galatians 3 that, that part of the reason the law was given was to be our guardian until Christ. That word guardian can be translated our teacher until Christ. And so the law had a purpose in the life of God's people. It was to teach them. You may ask, well, what was it to teach them? Well, Paul points that out in Romans chapter 3 where he says, first, the law was to teach God's people that they were accountable to God. And so this law that we read today about social justice, the laws that we've read about retaliation and retribution and servanthood and indebtedness and worship and laws about altars, all these laws were given by God. There were no city council meetings here. There was no Senate, no House of Republicans. There was no vote. There was no law on the ballot. This was a law given directly from God to His people. And it reminded the people every time they heard the law, this was from God and we are accountable to God. And the law should remind us of that very same thing today, but not just that. Paul goes on in Romans 3 to say that the law also helps us to understand that we are sinners. Sinners. 
In Romans 3, verse 20, he said, Through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so I've used this illustration before. I think it helps us understand it. It's kind of like if you're driving down the, the parkway and you feel like you're doing fine. And in fact, this happened not long ago. I won't say who, but one of our pastors. You got a 50-50 chance there. It wasn't me. Uh, well, one of them had gotten a loaner car while their car was in the shop, and this car drove a bit nicer than their other vehicle. And so they're just driving down the parkway and look down and realize they're going beyond the speed limit, we'll just say, by quite a bit. Well, they understood that they were doing the wrong thing. Why? Because there's these signs all along the way, and the faster you go, the quicker you come to them that say, here's the speed limit. And so sometimes you might be in an area you're not familiar with and you really don't even know what the speed limit is. You make an assumption and you're driving a certain speed and then you see the sign and you become aware, oh wait, I'm breaking the law now. I need to slow down. That the law exposes to us that we are sinners. When we read the righteous standard of God, we realize we do not meet that righteous standard. And we are able to see our sin. The scripture says of itself, it's like a mirror. But this mirror exposes the sin in our heart. And so God's people, as they heard the law, they became aware of their sin. But not just that. Here in Exodus 22, the people are being made, made aware not only of their sin, but of the penalty for their sin. And the first penalty that's mentioned is a financial one, a financial penalty a consequence here it's in reference to a man who seduces a woman and there's premarital intimacy there and now he has to go to her father and there's a consequence there's a penalty for what's taking place now in one situation the father may decide that this man can now marry his daughter and so he has to pay a bride price but he may decide no you're worthless <laughs> I couldn't trust you with the purity of my daughter. How can I trust you to have purity in your marriage? You're not marrying my daughter. But notice there's still a bride price to be paid. Now we talked about this before in our study of Exodus. Whenever there was marriage among the Hebrew people in this context in this time, that there was an exchange of money. And so the, 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 the groom-to-be, he paid a bride price. This was money that went to the father of the bride. And there were many reasons for this. Now, some believe that this money went to the father because he was losing his daughter, and his daughter probably was among his other children, someone very helpful, somebody kind of working there uh, among his, his, his herd, among his farm, whatever he might have. And so now he's got to pay somebody to come in and do that, so he needs money, resources to do that. The bride price would have helped out with that. Now, we also know historically that the bride price really was something that was set aside for his daughter should her husband not provide as he should for her. So if he were to abandon her, if he were to divorce her, if he were to die, well, this money was then set aside to take care of his daughter. And so here, notice, if this man seduces this woman, they may enter into marriage, bride price would normally be paid. But even if they don't, and the father says no, he's still got to pay a price. That there is a penalty, there's a consequence for his sin. But not just that, as the passage continues, there are more severe consequences. There are death penalties. That there's capital punishment here. 
And we've already looked in God's word at how there was capital punishment for the taking of a life, a life for a life. And we talked about how really what that does is it shows us that the utter value of life in God's eyes. You can't just pay for taking life with money. You pay for it with your own, blood for blood. But here we see capital offenses where a life's not taken, and yet these are so offensive to God that he requires death as the penalty. There in verses 18 through 20, all three of these things, these violations, I believe, are a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And so first he deals with the sorceress. The, the, the sorceress is someone who would, who would sell charms. They would, they, they would sell spells. They would convince people that they had spiritual powers. And really what they were influenced by were demonic powers. And so they were basically telling people, if you give me money, I can ward off evil and I can promise you good. Earlier this year, I had the chance to go to West Africa on a mission trip, and I remember in one of the villages we went to, we, we pulled up there, and we were camping out in this village, and, and the, pretty much the entire village had come out to hear us. And so as I was preaching the gospel to this village, there was this, this one man who just seemed so agitated. And he didn't get up and make a, a big fuss, but you could see physically something was going on with him. He, he did not like being there. He couldn't sit still. He started pacing back and forth, and then suddenly he just left. Well, later that same man was walking around the village, and he was selling charms and enchantments. And as I talked to an interpreter about it, he said, oh, yeah, he's, he's the local witch doctor. And so if a child's sick, he'll sell this bracelet, and it's supposed to make them better. Or if a, if a family's had sickness, then they, that, that means there's bad spirits there, and he'll ward them off. Or if they want good fortune, he'll sell them this thing. He, he, was, a, he was a witch doctor. He was a sorcerer. And so what the text here is speaking of is that, that, that you can't permit the, the sorceress, the sorcerer to live. Why? Because that's a violation of the first commandment. They, they are leading people to give glory to another. To, to worship a false, demonic being. goes on in verse 19 to talk about a, a gross immoral act that was involved in cult worship. And then he picks up there in verse 20, talks about sacrificing to other gods, that this was something that God's people were very familiar with because they had spent generations there in Egypt. And in our study of that portion of Exodus, we talked about how the people would have made sacrifice after sacrifice to these false pagan gods. In fact, often when, when Moses encounters Pharaoh, Pharaoh's on his way down to the river to offer a sacrifice. And when he commands that the Hebrew children be thrown into the Nile, that he is offering a sacrifice to the gods and goddesses of the Nile. And so God says, if you were going to violate my word in those ways... You will be destroyed. It was a capital offense among God's people. God was teaching His people that, that sin was serious and there was a serious consequence for sin. Now you compare that with how our culture views sin today. And there are things in our culture that that many people, perhaps the majority, find morally unacceptable, but that list is getting smaller and smaller. 
and for those few things that remain on there where the culture might even go so far as to say these are wrong and these are sin. Usually the reason they're deemed wrong is sin is because they hurt other people. And so the mantra of our culture is, well, you can do whatever you want to do because you're not hurting anybody. It's about us. And so when something's deemed wrong, morally unacceptable, even if they use that term sin, it's wrong because it hurts another person. But in our culture, there's no concept of something being sinful because it's an offense to a holy God. See, sin isn't just sin because of humanitarian reasons. Sin is sin because it's offense against a holy God. And sin has a real penalty, a real consequence. And we read it in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Now just think about that for a second. The wages of sin is death. Well, what is a wage? A wage is pay, it's compensation, it's, it's something that you earn. And so imagine for a minute that, that you've gotten your first job. Think back to when you got your first job. and You, you know that you've talked to that employer and they're going to pay you maybe so much money per hour for the job that you're going to do. And so you kind of know going into this, well, if I provide this service, they're going to provide this money. That's my pay. That's my compensation. That's my wage. And so maybe when it was your first job, you were thinking up all the things of, oh, I can't wait to get this or get this. And you go to get your first paycheck, your first pay, whatever that wage was. And imagine they looked at you and said, well, we're going to renegotiate this. We know we agreed to so much per hour, but really, instead of giving you monetary payment, we're just going to send some good thoughts your way. <laughs> In fact, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but you've done such a good job this week. Me and all the others in management, we've been smiling at you a lot. In fact, come here, let us give you a big hug. That's, that's how we're going to pay you for your job. Where we're going to have good thoughts about you. We're going to do kind deeds for you. How's that sound? Would anybody be excited about that offer? I mean, you might want to hug today, but probably not in that form. No, you, you, you wouldn't like that. Why? Because you agreed to a wage, to an amount of money. You're going to pay me this to do this. Now you're saying if I do this, you're going you're gonna to change what that wage is? That's not how it works. And so then consider that when you read Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. God defines the wage. He doesn't open up negotiations. And yet, how often do people think they will address a holy God and say, well, I tried really hard, God. I think I did, I know I did some bad stuff, but man, I really tried to do some good stuff. I really, I really tried for my good to outweigh my bad. And God, you, you know the hand I was dealt. I mean, my family, whew, they're just crazy. I, I look pretty good compared to them. And we have all these thoughts in our mind that, that somehow we're going to come to an eternal negotiation table and we're going to convince a holy God to change the wage. Because the wages of sin, God said, is death. And we might look at that and say, well, yeah, there's some people who deserve 
death. They deserve the wrath of God and shared the gospel with many people and they'll say things like, well, you know, Hitler, yeah, he was awful. There, there seem to be these people in our history that we can agree, yeah, they, they deserve hell. Friends, I'll remind you of the garden. Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit. And God told them, on the day you eat from this fruit, not you will maybe die. Not, not I'm going to leave this on the table to threaten you. No, He said, you will surely die. If Adam and Eve earned death for biting a piece of fruit, how much more have we earned it? And the Scripture says to us, these, these social justice laws remind us there is a very real wage of sin. And if you don't understand this morning that you indeed are a sinner and that you indeed deserve the wrath of God, then friend, you don't understand the Gospel. Because until you understand how messed up you are, you cannot see how glorious the offer of the Gospel is. That He who knew no sin took on the due penalty for sin on our behalf that we might receive eternal life. We also read in Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, we all deserve condemnation and death. The wages of sin is death. But the good news is this, the verse goes on to say the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. <laughs> the free gift. <laughs> I remember years ago, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think in my head how many years ago now. It's a while back, about 20 years ago. <clears throat> Sandy and I were, were looking at a vehicle. And I remember specifically going to this car dealership and this guy telling us, hey, listen, if you buy a car today, you get a free, I think it was an apple pie. They were a little bit more valuable back then, maybe. But anyways, you buy a car, you get a free apple pie. And I remember looking at that man and saying, that would be the most expensive free apple pie I ever bought. You know, we, we hear those gimmicks all the time, don't we? If you'll just buy this and this and this and this, well, you'll get this for free. You know? Kind of like, you know, somebody comes home and says, well, yeah, look at all the stuff I got. Look how much I saved. <laughs> Wrong. Look how much you spent. See, so many offers in the world, there's nothing that's free. There's very little in our world that's truly free. It seems like there's always a hook. There's always a catch. There's no catch in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin, what we deserve, what we have duly earned is death, is wrath, is judgment. And God says to us, but I've got a free gift for you. And there's absolutely nothing you can do to earn it or deserve it or to pay for it because it's already paid. And Jesus Christ paid for it on the cross. And so there's this truthful word of condemnation paired with this wonderful word of grace and mercy and truth 
The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And we receive that gift not through negotiating wages. <laughs> we receive that gift through repentance and faith. And these social justice laws remind us they remind us of sin and the penalty for us, which points us straight towards the gospel. Point two there in your outline, the social justice laws also teach us. That they teach us to care for the disadvantaged and the defenseless. So, so God here now goes through a, a set of laws as he's explained to the people, you are indeed sinners and there's a consequence for sin. And now he begins to tell them, listen, now, now here's how you need to treat other people. And because of the sin of your heart, this isn't going to be, be your natural inclination. And so I need to give you this law to correct you and teach you and restrict you so that you might represent me. You are a people called after my name. And so the first group of people he talks about, verse 21 there, are sojourners. That, that word can be translated foreigner, immigrant. And God says specifically in verse 21, listen, you shall not wrong a sojourner or a, oppress the sojourner. See, sojourners, foreigners, immigrants in that day, that they were easily mistreated. That they were from another land, they spoke another language, they didn't know the customs, and so often the people looked down on them. In fact, during this day, all of the surrounding nations, we can learn historically, they all treated foreigners very bad. They mistreated them and they oppressed them. And you want to see an example of that? We'll go back to the beginning of Exodus. God's people were sojourners. God's people were foreigners. How did the Egyptians treat them? They mistreated them and they abused them and they enslaved them. And so God says here to His people, you need to be radically different than those around you. You need to care for the sojourner, the foreigner, the immigrants. You don't mistreat them or oppress them. And why does he say that? Because he reminds them, listen, you were the sojourners once. Essentially, God's saying to his people, have you forgotten where you came from? You were the strangers. You were the foreigners. You were the immigrants. So don't you dare turn around and treat them like second-class citizens because that's exactly who you were once. He is basically saying, have you forgotten the mercy I showed you. Go show this mercy to others. Show it to the sojourner. Verse 22, show it to the widow and the fatherless. And just as the sojourner in this culture, in this context, in this time, uh, a family without a father, a wife without a husband, that, that, that widow, those children, they were vulnerable. They were usually impoverished. That his husband, this father, was the provider. That the property was in his name. If something happened to him, whether he abandoned that call or he died, then the family's left destitute and they're easily taken advantage of. And so notice what God says here. You better not mistreat them. And if you do, your wives are going to be the widows. Your children are going to be the fatherless. God hands down capital punishment here over the mistreatment of a widow and a fatherless child. He goes on to speak of the poor. Verse 26. 
And he says, listen, and he's speaking specifically to the Hebrew people among their own people. He says, you, you take care of your people, but don't, don't lend to them with interest. We live in a day in a context today where there's no shortage of people who will lend others money. But oftentimes, they lend in such a way that people become enslaved. Yeah, I'll give you this fine print for 30%. And so people get in this cycle where they can never get out of debt. And here God's saying to his people, don't, don't treat one another that way. Don't act like the money lender to him. Don't exact interest on him. In fact, don't take something from him that he needs to survive. And that day and that age, this poor person, all they may own and have to their name would be their, their, their garments, their, their outer garment, their, their, their cloak. It's what their blanket at night. It's what kept them warm. It's what protected them. And so they would give whatever they had as surety for a loan. Well, I need to borrow this from you, so I'll give you this, and then when I pay you back, you give that back to me. But God says here, listen, don't take what they need to survive. Don't take his cloak. He's going to need that or he's going to freeze at night. Take care of the poor. Don't take advantage of the poor. So how are we to treat the foreigner, the widow, the fatherless, the poor today? Are, are these laws just in reference to a certain place and a certain time? Well, one of the ways we answer that question is by saying, well, does the New Testament say anything about them? And the New Testament says a lot about these things, doesn't it? The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, says this in reference to foreigners. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. That word can be interpreted or translated foreigners. And so God says here, we are, we are to love the foreigner. We are to show hospitality to them. 1 Peter 2 reminds us of why. We are sojourners and exiles. So hear this, what the Scripture says of you and me this morning, if we are followers of Christ, we are the sojourners. We are the foreigner. And some of you just woke up and heard that and said, I ain't no foreigner. Born and raised here. Family's always lived here. My great-great-granddad, I ain't no foreigner. Well, if you love Jesus, you are. Because this world isn't your home, friend. And, and if you're holding on to this world like it is your home, then there might be a good chance that it is the only home you've got. But, but you should feel a sense that you are a stranger in a strange land. You, you should turn on the news and open up the paper and hear all the conversations around you and think, wait a second, I, I don't really fit into this. Because there's a longing God's put in our heart for something better, something more, something pure, and something holy, and something righteous. Where there is no more sickness, no more disease, and no more death. Where there's no more sin or consequence of sin. Where God's people will gather around the throne and will worship Him for eternity. We, we get a glimpse of it when we gather. When, when we sing... He will hold me fast. We, we get a glimpse of it. And if in that glimpse our greater concern is how our ball team went that week, be concerned for your soul, friend. 
When we sing about the great news of the gospel, if that doesn't stir something up in here and your greatest concern is where you're going to eat lunch today, consider the fate of your mortal soul. This life will pass. And you will either look to God in reference to Romans 6.23 where it says the wages of sin is death. You will either look to that and now be prepared to pay your penalty for the rest of eternity under the hand of a holy God. Or you will look to God in reference to Romans 6.23 and you will praise Him for the free gift of Christ and the Gospel. And in this messed up, fallen world, He gives us a glimpse of this. He reminds us that we're strangers here. And then He calls us, because we are strangers, to to care for those who, who are foreigners, who are immigrants, who are sojourners. Not just that, we're to care for the widows and the fatherless. Still a command in James 1.27 Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. We're we're to care for the widow and the orphan. And the poor, James 2, says that that we actually measure the fruit of our faith based on how well we care for the poor. And in fact, in James 2, James writes there, if you have no regard for the poor around you, if you are neglecting the poor, then you don't actually have a living faith, you have a dead faith. Matthew 5, Jesus says, Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And so the call to care for the foreigner, for the widow, for the fatherless, for the poor is still very much a call in our lives today. So how do you feel about that? (laughs) I mean, honestly, just ask yourself this morning, what is your attitude towards the foreigner? What is your attitude towards the immigrant? Are you caring for the widows, for the fatherless? How do you respond to poverty and to the poor? Well, we can debate that issue in our own culture, but let me make sure you hear me when I'm saying this. When I'm speaking of poverty and poor, I'm talking about the world. Did you know that half of the world's population, more than 3 billion people live on less than $2 and 50 cents a day. That that among the world's poorest, 1.3 billion live on less than a dollar and 25 cents a day. Now let that sink in while you're calculating your tip at Chili's. See, we're we're not just called to eradicate poverty, to, to, to just give financially so that we can cure all these things because we could, we could do something for these 3 billion people to change their temporal situation and they still burn for eternity in a very real hell. But, but we are called to, to live holy lives, to represent a holy God in such a way that we are concerned about these things and that ultimately in seeking to meet these physical needs that we look towards a deeper spiritual need. So I believe as Christians we should care for the foreigner. But ultimately what the foreigner needs is the gospel so that they can have an eternal home. As Christians we should care for the fatherless. 
But ultimately, the greatest care we can give for them is to lead them towards a relationship with a heavenly Father. As Christians, we should care about the poor. But the greatest thing we can give for the poor is to point them towards the gospel which leads to a kingdom in heaven. And so in summary, as we consider all these things, I want us to, to leave with this point three. That the social justice laws show us then how to love God and love our neighbor. And I've talked about those two things often as we've gone through this study of Exodus. The Ten Commandments are, are basically broken down into those two things. The first four commandments tell us how to love God. Those last six commandments tell us how to love others. That's how Jesus summarized the law for that teacher of the law who came to him and asked that question, what's the greatest commandment? And he says you should love God and you should love others. And so here in chapter 23, he tells us how to do those, very, those things. And in chapter 22, we love God, we don't curse God, we don't withhold giving from God. That, that there's a reason when I pray for our offering that I say let's continue in our worship through giving. We, we are worshiping God when we give. And God here warns His people, don't, don't neglect that form of worship. We, we treasure God when we give to the things God treasures. And we are to love our neighbor. There in chapter 23, he talks about we love our neighbor by not lying about our neighbor, not providing false witness against our neighbor. And he even says our, our enemy is our neighbor. <laughs> so, so if we see our enemy in need, someone who hates us in need, someone who spoke ill of us in need, we, we are to help them. Again, Jesus reminds us these things in Luke 6. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who good do, to, do good to you, well, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And so Jesus calls us then to, to love our enemies, to do good for our neighbor. And to expect nothing in return, but says our reward will be great in heaven. And so as you consider these things this morning, I, I just want you to leave with this. That this call to love God and love others. You can't truly love God until you respond to the love of God. You cannot truly love God until you respond to the love of God. Romans 5.8 says God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So how do we respond to that? The Scripture says if we will confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. And so we respond to the love of God through repentance and through faith and through trusting not in ourselves but trusting in Christ for our salvation. And so along with that, we can't truly love others until we respond to the love of God. But because our love of others will always be deep-rooted in our own selfish interests. We will love them insofar and as much as we're going to get something out of the deal. But once we've responded to the love of God and to the gospel of Christ, the fruit of that then, 1 John 1.19, is we love because He first loved us. And so, as you consider God's Word today, consider these questions. Are you loving God? Are you loving others? Have you responded 
to the love of God because if you have not, you can't truly love Him, you can't truly love others. As you consider what God's Word says about sin and the penalty for sin, how we're to be compassionate and care for others, what it truly looks like to walk with the Lord and be holy as He's called us to be holy. As you consider those things, again, remember that great truth. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. If you would stand together as we consider these things and as we pray. Father God, none of us can none of us can change the heart of man. We can preach, we can teach, we can pray, we can talk and discuss, we can beg, we can plead, but Father, only you through the power of your Spirit can change someone's heart. And so Lord, in response to your word, I, I pray that you would change hearts today. If there's any here who's yet to respond to love that you have offered, respond to the gospel that you've offered, respond to the free gift you've offered through repentance and faith, I pray, God, that you would empower them now through your Holy Spirit to turn away from sin and to trust in Christ. If there's folks here this morning who, who are struggling with calling sin, sin, with recognizing that, that, that what's in their life true is sin and there is a penalty for that, would you convict them of that, Lord? If there's any of us this morning who are struggling with how we treat and feel about the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, the poor, God, would you bring us to repentance and faith? Would you help us through the power of the gospel to love you and love others? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.